As parents, my wife and I love looking at pictures of our kids from years past. We love reminding ourselves of what they looked like when they were younger. And while we appreciate pictures of our kids individually, the pictures that give us the most delight, the most joy, are the ones of our kids together enjoying each other, playing together, laughing together, being kind to each other, partly because that doesn't always happen. And so we love those pictures where we get to see our kids together joyfully laughing and playing. And, and that reflects our attitude toward them. We delight in each of our children individually, but we have a special joy that comes when we see our kids loving each other, being kind to one another, uh, sharing with each other, thinking of each other, being thoughtful. And one of the important things we see throughout Scripture is that our faith is communal. The Lord delights in each of his children individually. If you belong to Christ, the Lord delights in you. We also see that he particularly delights in his people gathering together, worshiping him, and loving one another. We see this, for example, in both Leviticus and Hebrews. Today we are finishing our three-part sermon series going through the book of Leviticus at a high level. Next week we will begin a sermon series going through the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend 24 sermons working our way through the 13 chapters of Hebrews. We are excited to begin this sermon series. It is a wonderful, powerful book that exalts the glory of Jesus Christ and encourages Christians to persevere, to endure, to hold fast to Christ. So we look forward to beginning that series next week. What we will see in Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews draws heavily on the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Leviticus. One of the things the author of Hebrews does is contrasts the Old Covenant, which we read about in the Old Testament scriptures, with the New Covenant established by Christ. And he points to what the Lord did in the Old Covenant and what he has done in Christ in the New Covenant to demonstrate that the New Covenant established by Christ is far better. And Christ himself is far better than anyone or anything. With our three-part Leviticus series, we're not reading every verse of every chapter but we are considering the overall structure of the book, how it fits within the story of the Bible, as well as the main themes. While not reading every verse, we are reading numerous passages that help us understand and get a sense of Leviticus. What we have seen is that it is necessary to understand Leviticus within the context of the first five chapter, five books of the Bible. First five books being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the book of Exodus, the Lord looked upon the people of Israel as they were in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. They were suffering. They were being oppressed. They cried out. The Lord heard. The Lord saw. And the Lord acted to deliver them, to rescue them, to redeem them. And so he delivered them. He raised up Moses and he delivered his people Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He brought them out. He brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And then in Exodus chapter 19, they arrived at Mount Sinai. The rest of the book of Exodus takes place at the base of Mount Sinai. All of Leviticus takes place at the base of Mount Sinai. The first nine chapters of Numbers take place at Mount Sinai. Think about this. The first five books of the Bible, which are foundational for our understanding of all of Scripture, consists of 187 chapters. First five books, total of 187 chapters. Mount Sinai is the setting for 68 of those chapters, more than one-third. What took place at Mount Sinai 
was exceedingly important. And the importance of what took place at Mount Sinai is reflected in the rest of Scripture. If you are a lady participating in the women's Bible study, looking at the divided kingdom, I hope you'll reflect upon how what you're reading and studying in those chapters points back to what we see in the first five books of the Bible, including Leviticus. If you're participating in the men's Bible study, about to study Habakkuk, reading the minor prophets, I hope that you will see that the prophets oftentimes point back to the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Leviticus. Again, what took place in the first five chapter, or five, first five books is exceedingly important. What took place at Mount Sinai was exceedingly important. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, we read what the Lord said to Moses when they first arrived at Mount Sinai. Here's what it says. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord, call, uh, the Lord called out to him out, uh, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Wow, the Lord tells Moses that you of all people will be my treasured possession. I redeemed you, I saved you, I rescued you out of Egypt and brought you to myself so that you can be my people, my treasured possession amongst all peoples of the earth. He said, you must obey my voice. So the Lord entered into this covenant relationship with the people of Israel, whereby he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He would be faithful to them, to bless them, to make his dwelling among them, and they were to be faithful to him, worshiping him and worshiping him alone and living according to his righteous ways, rejecting the sinful, evil patterns of the nations around them. What we see in the book of Exodus is the Lord gave them instructions to construct a tabernacle, which would be the special place of God's dwelling right in the midst, right in the middle of the encampment of God's people. This would be a special place where they would worship the Lord. And so at the end of Exodus, they assembled, they constructed this tabernacle, and the Lord's glory came down in the tabernacle. It was wonderful. It was miraculous. It was glorious. But Moses and Aaron could not enter. That created a problem. God's presence, which was good, which was a gift, which was glorious, created a problem for the people because the people of Israel were sinful. They were unclean. They lived in the realm of death, whereas God's presence is the realm of life. And so Exodus ends with a problem. Leviticus, being more than a set of rules, is actually the solution to a problem. How can a sinful people live with a holy God? How can a holy God make his dwelling among a sinful people? Leviticus speaks to this. In Leviticus, we see the Lord providing a way for his people to live with him, for him to make his dwelling among them. In chapters 1 through 10, we have seen how the Lord instructed the Israelites regarding the sacrifices they were to offer in order to approach the Lord. And he provided an ordained priesthood to mediate on their behalf. In chapters 11 through 15, we read about the cleanness laws and the need for ritual purity. 
And what we see here is that the Israelites were to follow these cleanness laws to make themselves clean, to separate themselves from the realm of death in order that they might dwell in the realm of life. Chapter 16, which is the theological and literary center of Leviticus, details the Day of Atonement and how the Lord provided a way to atone for the sins of Israel and to clean them from all their uncleanness. What we saw last week is that Leviticus points in toward the Day of Atonement. The question coming out of the Day of Atonement was, how were the Israelites to live with God as his people. And, and so as we turn to the second half of Leviticus, the final 11 chapters are sometimes called the holiness code and focus more on moral and communal issues. What's important for us to understand is the purpose of these laws. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The purpose was for the people of Israel to be holy so that they would reflect the holy character and nature of the Lord. Why? Why was that important? Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary for the people of Israel to be holy so that they reflected the holy character and nature of the Lord? In chapter 26, verses 11 through 12, we read, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Israelites were called to be holy as the Lord is holy so that the Lord would dwell among them, so that he would walk among them. There was no greater gift that the Lord could give his people than his sweet and holy presence. Tom Schreiner writes, the call to obedience is not an impersonal ethic, or a list of duties. The call to obedience is deeply personal. Israel's obedience is related to their covenant relationship with the Lord. The Lord demands obedience because Israel belongs to him, because he is Israel's master and covenant Lord in his delivering Israel from Egypt. The people of Israel are regularly reminded that they are to keep God's commands because they have been redeemed from Egyptian slavery. The summons to obedience is presented not as an oppressive duty, but rather as a grateful response to the Lord's saving love. At a high level, the final 11 chapters can be divided as follows. Uh, chapters 17 through 22 deal with holiness laws. Chapters 23 through 25 deal with holy times. In chapters 26, we read the blessings and curses. And chapter 27 includes instructions on vows and dedication. We're not able to cover everything that takes place in these chapters, but we'll try to hit on a few things that help us, again, understand the main points and get a sense of the book. And so first, we'll consider the holiness laws. Chapters 17 through 22 reveal the holiness laws, with chapters 17 through 20 addressing all the people, and chapters 21 through 22 focusing on the priests. One of the ways we see the Day of Atonement functioning as the center of Leviticus is that there are matching sections on either side of chapter 16 with chapters 11 through 15 dealing with ritual and ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And in 17 through 22, we have regulations or laws addressing morality or holiness. 
one of the functions of the ritual cleanness regulations was to remind the people to be distinct and to distinguish between what is holy and what is sinful. In so doing, the cleanness laws and the holiness laws were a polemic against their sinful pagan neighbors. Some of the instructions specifically address the practices of the pagan nations around them. So the nations living around the people of Israel were wicked. They were sinful. They practiced all kinds of immorality, and they worshiped all kinds of false gods, and their worship Their sacrifices, their rituals were detestable to the Lord. And so the Lord gives his people his laws and his practices. And again, a lot of them serve as a polemic against the nations around them. He's saying what they're doing is evil. It is wrong. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping in a way that is detestable. They are practicing all kinds of immorality. And so you, my people, are to be distinct. You are not to be like them. You are not to do what they do. You are not to practice what they practice. You are not to worship in the way that they worship. In the first part of chapter 17, the Israelites were told that when they slaughtered an animal, they were required to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle. The purpose of this instruction was to keep the people from idolatry and offering sacrifices in the way their pagan neighbors did. In chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, we read this. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Blood was the means of atonement. The Lord provided blood as the means of making atonement for the sins of his people. And therefore, they were not to consume blood, which again was a practice of the pagan neighbors. Some of the pagan nations would consume blood, thinking that they could take the life force out of whatever died. And so the Lord is saying, don't worship the way they worship. Don't practice these things. Recognize that I have set apart blood as the means of atonement. So don't, don't slaughter animals outside the camp. Don't consume the blood like these other nations do. Chapters 18 through, uh, through 22 provide specific applications for the Israelites in their call to holiness. Chapters 18 and 20 focus on prohibitions, describing what the Israelites were not to do and the punishments if they did commit these sins. Listen to what we read in chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So once again, we see that the holiness laws serve as a polemic against their sinful neighbors. He says, don't do as the Egyptians did, the place where I brought you out of. Don't do as the Canaanites do, the place I am taking you into. Don't do as these other nations do. Don't practice their evil, their their sinful, wicked ways. Chapter 18 deals extensively with sexual immorality. And what we see is that the sexual ethic for Israel is rooted in God's creation, in his design, in his purpose for marriage and sex, which we read about in chapter Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God is the author of uh, marriage. He is the one who created man as male and female. He is the one who instituted marriage and created sex for the context of marriage. In chapter 20, the Lord condemned the wicked practice of child sacrifice using mediums and necromancers and sexual, uh, sexual immorality once again. While chapters 18 and 20 focus on prohibitions and punishments, 
Chapter 19 provides a positive vision of how they were to live as God's people and reflect his holy character. The chapter begins with instructions on proper worship, and then verses 9 through 18 focus on how they were to treat other members of the covenant community. The Lord gave them instructions on how they were to relate one to another. So in uh, verses 9 through 10, we see instructions regarding caring for the poor. He gave them instructions on how they were to reap their fields so that there would be provisions for those who were poor, who did not have. So he taught them how to care for the poor in their midst. And they gave them commands like, don't steal, don't lie, don't oppress your neighbor, don't show partiality in your judgments. He instructed them on how they were to live together. And then in verse 18 of chapter 19, we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Lord commanded his people to love one another, to care for one another, to treat one another justly. This is important to the Lord. How the Lord's people treat one another is of utmost importance to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked, which is the great commandment of the law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In summarizing all the law that the Lord gave to his people through Moses, Jesus boiled it down to two. Two broad commands could summarize the essence of the law. Love the Lord your God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted from Leviticus to summarize the law. I think it's worth pausing here to address a question that Christians have wrestled with throughout church history. Namely, how does the law given to the people of Israel through Moses apply to Christians today? What we see in Scripture is that when Christ came, he established a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we read, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then skipping down to verse 13, we read, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Did I skip that? For the first seven, for the first covenant had been faultless, there would be been no occasion to look for a second. Then skipping to verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So Bible scholar Jay Sklar explains, the laws of the Old Testament were given as part of a covenant that God established with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. When Jesus came, he established a new covenant. The old one is no longer in force. What that means is that the laws of the old covenant do not necessarily apply in the same way today. He was careful to use the word not necessarily, that phrase, for a couple of reasons. Number one, many of the laws given in the Old Covenant are repeated in the New Testament. So we see many of the laws, like love your neighbor as yourself, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Many of these laws are repeated. Secondly, the laws represent the values of the lawgiver, and the values of the lawgiver are ongoing. So, for example, 
as I mentioned in Leviticus chapter 19, they were given specific laws in regards to reaping their harvest. They were told, don't reap your field right up to its edge, but leave some there so that the poor can come in and they can have something as well. So that was a law given to the people of Israel under the old covenant. Now, are Christian farmers bound by that law today? Are they breaking God's law? If a Christian farmer reaps to the edge of their field, are they breaking God's law today? No, we would say no, because we are not under the old covenant. But what value is expressed through that law? God's people should care for the poor among them. And that continues. That is true today. We see that command given to God's people, the church. Care for the poor among you. In the New Testament, we see that those who belong to Christ are under the law of Christ. Paul speaks of being under the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21. And the duty of Christians to fulfill the law of Christ, we see in Galatians 6.2. Tom Schreiner explains, some of the old commands from the Old Testament pass over. Some of the commands are still required for today, but they're not required because they're part of the Old Covenant. They're required because the New Testament indicates that they are part of the law of Christ. Many have argued that Christians are inconsistent or that Christians arbitrarily choose what biblical laws they champion in which they can, and those which they conveniently ignore. After all, in the middle of the laws prohibiting sexual immorality in Leviticus, including homosexuality, is Leviticus 19.19, which says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And so the argument goes, if you Christians are going to uphold the biblical teaching on sexuality and condemn what you say is sexual immorality including homosexuality, then you shouldn't wear a t-shirt made of cotton and polyester. You're being inconsistent. You're picking and choosing. If you're wearing a cloth made of two different materials, then you're a hypocrite. What do we say to this? Well, the first thing we need to say is that the reason it's okay to wear a t-shirt that's made of cotton and polyester, and the reason it's okay for the men to have bacon at the men's breakfast and so on, is because we are not under the law of Moses. We are not, we do not belong to the old covenant. Even so, we can still seek to understand how this law reflects the values of the lawgiver. What is a point of emphasis we have been talking about this morning in Leviticus? The people of Israel were to be holy, set apart, distinct, and separate from the nations around them. Verse 19 deals with keeping things separate in their proper spheres. In some way, which may not be immediately apparent to us, the prohibitions on breeding different kinds of cattle, sowing two types of seed in a field, and wearing a garment of two types of material was a matter of holiness for the nation state of Israel under that covenant and surrounded by pagan nations. In the new covenant, making distinctions in these ways is no longer necessary for the church, which is not a nation state. The church is not under the old covenant, and the church is not a nation state. The church is made up of believers from all nations. But... The value of the lawgiver remains. We are called to be holy and distinct. Christians of all nations are called to be holy and distinct in the world. And one of the ways we are called to be holy and distinct is by adhering to the Lord's sexual ethic. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, Jesus condemned all forms of sexual immorality. His original audience would have understood that sexual immorality refers to all sexual activity apart from the sexual union of a man and a woman in the context of a covenant of marriage. We know this because when Jesus spoke about marriage, he didn't refer back to the law of Moses. He referred back to Genesis 1 and 2, pointing to God's original design and purpose for marriage and sexuality. So, as Christians, we do not arbitrarily pick and choose which laws we follow, which laws we challenge, and which ones we ignore. We recognize that we are no longer under the old covenant. And therefore, the laws of Moses do not necessarily apply to us in the same way today. Yet, we who are in Christ adhere to the law of Christ. And we see that many of the laws that were given in the old covenant are repeated for new covenant believers. Moreover, we look to understand the values of the lawgiver that are reflected in his laws. Sometimes that is difficult for us because their culture was so different than ours. Yet when we study God's word, we can learn much about what he values, and we can seek to rightly apply that in our lives as those who belong to the Lord today. Okay, moving on. Chapters 21 through 22 deal with the Lord's demand of holiness for the priests. In chapter 21, verse 8, we read, You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. This phrase, I, the Lord, sanctify you, is used six times in this part of the text, emphasizing the Lord's work in sanctifying his people and sanctifying his priests and the need for them to be holy as they were the ones who offered the sacrifices before the Lord. As those who were set apart to serve in the tabernacle, the regulations for the priests are even more stringent. They were required to show the Lord's holiness in their character and in their bodies. They were given a great privilege of serving before the Lord on behalf of the people in this way. With this privilege, with this responsibility, came a demand to live a holy life. Reminds us of what Jesus said he said, to whom much is given, much is required. Before we move on to the next section, dealing with holy times, I also think it's good for us to recognize that one of the purposes of the law, both the law that was given at Mount Sinai and the law of Christ, is to reveal our sinfulness. One of the purposes of, of the law is to reveal our sinfulness. God is holy, his law is good, and every single one of us has fallen short. Every single one of us has disobeyed God's good commands. No one is holy in and of themselves. And what that means is we are all in the need of forgiveness. We are all in the need, uh, have the need of uh, atonement being made for our sins. We cannot fix this problem. We cannot cover our sins. We cannot make ourselves pure. We cannot make ourselves holy. If you are not a Christian, you need to understand that you have a problem. You have a problem that is similar to the, the Israelites. You have a problem that's similar to the rest of all of us, namely that God made you. He created you in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to glorify him but you have sinned against him and your sin puts you at enmity with him. And therefore you are in the need, you are in need of having your sins being forgiven. You need atonement to be made for your sins. The good news is that God has provided a way to save sinners like all of us. And he has done so by providing Jesus Christ, the son of God, as the savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus is the only one who lived a life without sin, perfectly obeying and fulfilling the will of God. 
And Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment for the sins of his people. Even though he was the one person who did not deserve to be punished by God, he was punished by God at the cross as a substitute in our place, taking our punishment for us so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. After he was buried, Christ rose from the grave, conquering death, and presented himself on our behalf to the Father. Friend, the good news is that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. Everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. And you will get to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, believe in Christ. Run to him. Be saved. The next thing we see in the book of Leviticus is holy times. In chapters 23 through 25, we learn about the holy times in Israel's calendar. Keeping this calendar would set Israel apart from all the surrounding nations. In chapters 23, uh, in chapter 23, verses 1 through 2, we read, Then the Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So in these two chapters, three chapters, we read about the Sabbath, Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. They had quite a, quite a few feasts, quite a few celebrations. Numerous scholars have noted how the Sabbath principle permeates each of the feasts, with each requiring ceasing ordinary work and dedication to the Lord uh, by means of offering. Michael Morales writes, Without appointed Sabbaths and festivals for fellowship with God, the tabernacle, along with its priesthood and rituals for drawing near, would have no purpose. The tabernacle, after all, was meant by God to be a tent of meeting. As we will see, the final third of Leviticus resounds with the festive gatherings of Israel's calendar, a sure signal that the dwelling of God has indeed become the tent of meeting between Israel and God. Leviticus 24, uh, 1 through 9, provides a depiction of this goal. Listen to what we read in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as covenant forever. And that shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. The lamps represent the presence of God. And the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel as they stand in the presence of the Lord. The picture we are given here in these verses is the light of God's presence shining on God's people as they enjoy rest and fellowship with him. It is a beautiful picture of the goal of all that is in Leviticus. The calendar was a wonderful reminder of who God is, of what he had done for them, of who they were as God's people and his goal for them as his people. 
Again, we are not under the old covenant, so we don't adhere to this calendar. But as those who belong to the new covenant, we worship the risen Lord who rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And what we see in Scripture is that Christians gather on the first day of the week to worship the risen Lord because Christ rose on the first day of the week. And so we, as the Lord's people, gather on the first day, the Lord's day, to worship the risen Lord. We do this week after week. We cease from work. We pause. We gather. We celebrate and we worship him to remember who he is, what he's done for us in Christ, to joyfully worship him and bring glory to his name. The Lord delights in his people gathering together to worship him. And so we are a part of this tradition. We continue this pattern. We continue to worship the Lord together as those who belong to the Lord in the new covenant. Chapter 26 lays out the blessings and curses of the covenant. The Lord promised to bless the Israelites if they remained faithful to him. He promised them wonderful things. He promised to provide for all of their needs. He promised to give them rest, safety, security, victory over all their enemies. He promised to richly bless them. And all they had to do was be faithful to him. If they were faithful to him, worshiping him, obeying his laws, he would take care of all the rest. He would richly bless his people. And as I said earlier, best of all, he promised to make his dwelling among them. Conversely, he warned them what would happen if they disobeyed him and broke the covenant. He warned them that they would experience disaster. If they broke covenant, if they worshiped false gods, if they practiced immorality and injustice, then he would punish them. They would suffer. Ultimately, their enemies would defeat them, and they would be exiled from the land that he gave them. Sadly for Israel, the warnings did not prevent them from turning away from the Lord, but foretold of what eventually took place in their history. But one of the things to note at the end of the chapter is that after warning of exile, the Lord said that he would not forsake them if they returned to him. In chapter 26, verses 44 and 45, we read, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their uh, forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. What a beautiful description of the Lord's mercy. Even if the people were to forsake him, turn and worship other gods, if after they were punished and suffered for their disobedience, they repented, he would receive them again. He would once again show them mercy. These verses give us a beautiful picture of God's mercy towards sinners who repent and turn to him. When we repent and turn to the Lord, he is merciful to us, even though we have all sinned greatly against him. It's like we sing in the song, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. The final chapter of Leviticus is sometimes referred to as an appendix or an addendum and gives detailed instructions about vows and tithes. Leviticus closes with chapter 27, verse 34, which states, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Brothers and sisters, I hope we come away from this sermon series with a greater sense of awe and wonder of God. The Lord went to great lengths to set apart sinful people for himself so that they could approach him, worship him, and enjoy fellowship with him. Leviticus is relational. Far from being just a a list of rituals and rules and laws, Leviticus is God's, is God the Lord providing a way 
for his people to live with him and enjoy the sweet blessing of his presence. The Lord desires to dwell with his people both then and now, which is good news for us because there is nothing sweeter, more desirable, and more pleasurable than the presence of the Lord. In Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 26, 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you believe that in his presence there is fullness of joy? Do you believe that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? Where do you seek joy? Where do you seek pleasure? Where do you seek satisfaction? He is the one, and he is the only one, who can satisfy you, who can make you whole, who can give you pleasures forevermore. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle gave way to the temple, which was the more permanent place of God's dwelling, until, of course, it was destroyed. When Jesus came into the world, we read in John 1 that he dwelt among us. The language that John used when he wrote this in chapter 1 was literally, he tabernacled among us. God made his dwelling among us in Jesus. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is described in this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of the glory of God made his dwelling among us. In the new covenant, we no longer worship at a physical temple because the Lord has done something new and extraordinary. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul wrote, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? When he used the word you, he was using it in its plural form. You all. Don't you know that you all, the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The special place of God's dwelling is where we, the church, gather. Our faith is communal. It always has been, and it always will be. What is special about our gathering is that the Lord dwells with us. This is the special place of his dwelling because we, his people, are gathered together. This is true wherever God's people gather. How special is that? How sweet is that? I hope we understand this. I hope that when we understand that when we gather together as Christians, we're not merely carrying out our duty. We're not coming just to merely hear a sermon so that we can better live our lives as Christians. So that's a good thing. We are gathering because this is the special place of God's dwelling. When we gather, the Lord is here. I hope that gives us an eagerness and enthusiasm to gather. I hope we look forward to the Lord's day. I hope that we repent of viewing the gathering as burdensome. I hope we relish it, cherish it, eagerly look forward to it, because when we gather, he is here. And there is nothing sweeter than the presence of the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, may we relish and cherish, look forward to gathering as his people 
knowing that he is here. And as the place of God's dwelling, we are called to be holy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, speaking to the church, Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We as God's people, the special place of God's dwelling, are called to be holy as he is holy. Brothers and sisters, may it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are glorious. You are the Holy One. There is no one and nothing that compares with you. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. May we know this. May we believe this. May we fully embrace this. We pray that you'd give us a deeper understanding of what it means that we as your people, when we gather, are the special place of your dwelling. May we be a people who love and seek your presence wholeheartedly. As you provided a way for the people of Israel to live with you and for you to dwell among them, we pray that you would help us to understand that you have provided a far greater way for us in Jesus Christ to live for you and for you to dwell among us. In light of this, we pray that we will be holy as you are holy. May our lives reflect you and bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.